0: Well, good morning, church family. It's a delight to be with you. Anna and I had a really incredible trip to India. We're going to share more of that with you uh, next Sunday. Thank you so much for praying for us. A number, of, a number of you were so faithful to reach out to us while we were there and text us and just let us know you were thinking of us and praying for us. And what a joy to be on the field with a number of our partners and to encourage them, but only, not only to encourage them, but also to be encouraged by them. What, an enjoy, what a joy indeed it was. I'd like to encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and look with me to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 52, beginning in verse 13, down through chapter 53, verse 12. And I'd like to express appreciation to our brother Laramie for proclaiming the truths of God's Word last week from Isaiah 51 as he looked at our helpless and hopeless state. But in Christ, we indeed find hope for Jesus himself has drank our bitter cup that we deserved, the cup of wrath, and in doing so has provided righteousness and salvation to those who by faith would trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. We come to what is known as the fourth servant song in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah has four servant songs and each of those Servant songs or hymns reveals a various aspect of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it culminates here with this text of Scripture in Isaiah 52, verse 13 down through 53, verse 12. And here in this text of Scripture, we learn more about what this servant would do. The suffering of the servant in this text, the suffering of the servant and making atonement is made glorious in Jesus' resurrection. As we celebrate Resurrection Sunday this morning, we are reminded that there is no glory of resurrection without the pain and suffering of atonement. We celebrate Jesus' resurrection. Because Jesus, as this text reveals, suffered the greatest agony of all, a cruel death on a Roman cross. And in doing so, he, Jesus, has made atonement for the sins of the world, thereby making it possible for you and me to have a right relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. As we think about this idea of Christ and his suffering making atonement and that atonement being made glorious in the resurrection, we are reminded of the Apostle Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as he reflected upon that truth as he said these words, Without the resurrection our faith is in vain. The narrative of Jesus' crucifixion culminates and climaxes in the story of Jesus' resurrection. But as we see this text so well combining the narrative of atonement, of suffering, of sacrifice with burial and resurrection, we also hear the words of the Apostle Paul from Romans chapter 4 as he also combined in this gospel narrative Jesus's death and resurrection here Paul from Romans chapter 4 verse 25 who was raised from the dead Jesus our lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification we are made right with God through Jesus' resurrection. And friends, it is true of the Christian community that every Sunday morning is Resurrection Sunday. We're glad that you've joined us for Easter, but I'd like to remind you that every Sunday is Easter at Woodlawn Baptist Church, for we gather As a reflection of what Christ has accomplished on our behalf through his resurrection. Isaiah chapter 52 verse 13 through chapter 53 verse 12 is referenced eight times in the New Testament. We noted as we began a reflection on Easter in that first servant song from Isaiah 49, a number of references in the New Testament to the servant songs that clearly indicate Christ and his followers, his disciples understood Jesus was the fulfillment of these four servant songs. And as we reflect in the New Testament of those servant songs, Isaiah 52 verse 13 through 53 verse 12 is the most quoted servant song in the New Testament. The New Testament writers quote this servant song from Isaiah 52, 13 through fifty three twelve to reflect upon Christ in a number of ways. One, to paint an image of a high Christology, Christology from above, to show for you and me that Jesus Christ is indeed the Messiah. But John also quotes in John chapter 12, Verse 37 through the end, uh, almost to the end of verse 12, uh, chapter 12, as we reference this morning in our worship guide, John uses Isaiah 50, 52 and 53 to prove the unbelief of the nation of Israel. Matthew, in Matthew chapter 8, verse 17, uses this text of scripture to prove to you and me that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. Luther, in reflecting upon the atonement and resurrection of Christ, said that this passage of Scripture is, quote, the foremost, the foremost passage on suffering and atonement, and there is hardly another like it. We climb the mountain of atonement and resurrection to its highest peak, In Isaiah 52 and 53, there is no clearer Old Testament passage that reflects on the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ like this passage. Isaiah centers this hymn around five stanzas. He was a good hymn writer. Five stanzas. The first being Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13 through 15. The second stanza being Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 3. The third stanza of this hymn being Isaiah 53, verses 4, 5, and 6. The fourth stanza being Isaiah 53, verses 7 through 9. And it concludes with a summary statement of the fifth stanza in Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 12. And as we reflect on this passage of Scripture, I want you to join me in reflecting upon these five truths from this text of Scripture. First, even as Pastor Laramie mentioned last week, so too does this text reveal with great specificity that glory comes through suffering. Isaiah 52, verse 13 through 15 reminds us that glory comes through suffering. The glory of the cross is only obtained by the suffering of the cross. Listen as Isaiah reflects upon this suffering of the servant. He mentions The glory of the servant first, beginning in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. And notice these next three words that are used in reference to this servant. This servant will be one who shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Isaiah begins this reflection on the Suffering of the servant by a reflection on the glory of this servant. Just who is this servant? As we reflect on this passage of Scripture, we notice from the very beginning that whoever this servant is, he is closely akin and aligned to Yahweh Himself. For in the book of Isaiah, three times these words, high, Lifted up and exalted are used, and every single time in these three other cases, every single time these words are a reference to Yahweh. Look with me first in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, a reference to Isaiah's call to ministry. Isaiah pins these words In the year that Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, and he was what? High and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Look with me in Isaiah chapter 33, verse 10. Isaiah 33, verse 10. This is Yahweh speaking of himself. Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. And look again with me to Isaiah chapter 57. Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15. Isaiah 57, verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Every single time these words of high and lifted up and exalted are referenced in the book of Isaiah, it is a reference to Yahweh himself. But notice back again in Isaiah 52, verse 13. Isaiah 52, verse 13. It is not Yahweh who speaks. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. My servant. My servant is distinct from Yahweh himself. What shall my servant do? My servant shall be high and lifted up and he shall be exalted. The servant is none other than the incarnate God himself, Jesus. As one theologian reminded us from Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, Christ is not some subordinate assistant to the Father. Jesus is not the vice president of the universe. Christ is not a junior partner in the law firm of the Trinity. Jesus is fully, completely, totally God. And Isaiah reminds us at the very beginning of this reflection of this servant. This servant is none other than God incarnate, Christ himself. So as we see the acts. Of this servant. Know that the acts of this servant. Are indeed the very acts of God himself. This servant receives glory, verse 13. But how do we get to glory? Verses 14 and 15. Through intense suffering. See the suffering of this servant in verses 14 and 15. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. And his form beyond that of the children of mankind so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they shall see. And that which they have not heard, they shall understand. There is only one way we get to the glory of Jesus' resurrection. And it's through the intense suffering of the cross. Do you hear and see the pain, the brutality, the cruelty of what the cross? Does in Jesus' life. In case you've forgotten about the suffering of the cross, see these words again. What does the cross do to Jesus? It completely deforms his very appearance. The act of crucifixion places Jesus in a position where he doesn't even resemble humanity. We see various expressions of suffering in our world. We see the difficulty of that suffering. And in fact, in some measurable way, we ourselves experience what that suffering is like in a small way. For example,
1: I encourage all of
0: you to go back and grab a picture of when you were 20 years old. Now hold that picture of yourself at 20 up against yourself at whatever age you are now. We can see through that image The effects of sin. But friend, to whatever extent we might suppose we have suffered, that suffering pales in light of what Christ suffered on the cross. They didn't recognize him. They didn't even understand him to be human. This is what lashes with a cat's tail looks like. This is what thorns smashed into the skull of another produces. This is what the tip of a spear thrust into the side of another produces. Astonishment. Appearance so marred beyond human semblance. But notice what the suffering accomplishes. Atonement salvation for he will notice verse 15 sprinkle many nations this is what the act of the servant will do but why sprinkle many nations and sprinkle many nations with what we learn from the law in the torah that the shedding of blood is necessary for forgiveness of sins. There is in this text a hint at what Jesus will do through the shedding of his blood. And this is exactly what John picks up on in writing the book of Revelation. Look with me in Revelation chapter 7, verse 14, and again in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. Revelation chapter 7, verse 14. It's hard to preach with one hand. I can put it down. Well, can you hear me Now. Psych. Revelation chapter seven. Revelation chapter 7, verse 14. I said to him, Sir, sir, you know, and he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white, and what? The blood of the Lamb. Look again in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. And they have conquered him, that is the dragon, that is Satan. they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Friends, you and I are made right. We are victorious. How? Through the shedding of the blood of the lamb, through the sprinkling. That this servant will do of many nations. And how will he sprinkle many nations? He will sprinkle many nations through his suffering on the cross. But not only does this servant suffer, ultimately bringing about glory. Look what Isaiah reflects upon next in this next stanza. He reflects upon the strategy of weakness as a means of unbelief God had a strategy and God's strategy is a strategy that is foolishness to those who are perishing this is what Paul writes for example in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 beginning in verse 18 through the end of the chapter verse 32 the cross Paul writes is foolishness to those who are perishing but to those who are being saved it is what The power of God. What God accomplishes in the cross is the upending, the turning upside down of worldly philosophy. For the world understands power and might through strength, not power and might through weakness. But look at this servant. Chapter 53, verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? According to Paul in Romans chapter 10, Israel has not believed. They didn't trust in this servant. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The answer is to everyone. All are without excuse. Romans chapter 10, verses 14 through the end of the chapter. The problem does not lie with God. They have heard and they have known. God has made known through Jesus the means of salvation. But why might the people reject Jesus? Because Jesus in his being a servant is completely contrary to the mindset of the world. The world wants a ruling, conquering king. We like to follow mighty, powerful people. But look at this servant. Verse 2, he is one who grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. There was nothing intrinsically appealing about the person of Jesus. No beauty that we should despise him. For he himself was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows. What a name. And acquainted with grief. And as one with whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. The strategy that God uses to to depict victory is a strategy of weakness. Strategy of defeat. A a strategy of despisement. Jesus, while oftentimes depicted as one having blonde hair and blue eyes with hair flowing so beautifully down, halfway down his back, that is. A false, fake image. Jesus was not an image that you would hang in your home hoping for family members and others to come over and say, Oh, what a beautiful guy. What a wonderful uncle. What a wonderful, beautiful father. Jesus was despised and rejected. So Isaiah sets up for us in these first two stanzas what ultimately culminates in the third stanza, which is the heart of the very hymn that Isaiah has written for us concerning the person of Jesus We get to glory through suffering. This servant depicts strength through weakness. But the heart of what Isaiah wishes to communicate to us concerning the servant occurs here in this third stanza. The servant is a substitute for the sins of the world. Look at the vicarious substitution of Christ. Look at the penal substitution of Christ in Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. But not only do we see Jesus' vicarious substitution for the sins of the world, Notice there is a change in reflection, a change in the voice. Thus far, Isaiah has been depicting for us what Yahweh thinks of this servant. But notice who speaks now. He has borne Our griefs. And he has carried. Our sorrows. Yet. We. Esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for. Our. Transgressions. He was crushed for. Our iniquities upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. Beginning here in Isaiah chapter 53 verse 4, down through at least verse 9, we now see a reflection of humanity upon Christ. As humanity thinks about their state before God, as humanity reflects upon her state apart from God, as humanity reflects upon the substitutionary atonement of Christ, this is humanity's confession. This is your confession. This is my confession of what this servant has accomplished on our behalf. Surely, he begins in verse 4, this is a word that reaches out and grabs our attention. Isaiah, as if he hasn't already gotten our attention, wants to make sure that we are paying very careful, close attention to this declaration of the servant. Surely, absolutely, we might say, this is, What this servant has accomplished. Look at these words that he uses again here in verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. These words are words of sacrifice. These are words that come from the sacrificial language of the law. These are words that come from the sacrificial language that depicts how one is to receive atonement and forgiveness of sins, particularly in Leviticus chapter 5, 6, and 7 as we read of these two offerings, the guilt offering and the sin offering. Don't miss what Isaiah is saying here in verses, in verse four, as he reflects upon what Jesus has accomplished by using these two words, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. What happened on the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament? There were two animals involved. There was the goat that shed his blood. There was the goat that was sacrificed. And there was the scapegoat. There was the goat upon whom the sins of the nation of Israel were symbolically placed. And that goat ran outside of the bounds of the nation of Israel symbolizing what atonement has accomplished, the forgiveness of sins. That goat carried away the sins of the people. The goat that was slain bore the sins of the people through sacrifice. And friends, this is exactly what Jesus has accomplished on your behalf and on my behalf. Jesus has accomplished atonement and the effects of atonement, forgiveness of sins. There is atonement found in no other person or no other place than the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is forgiveness found in no other place or no other person than the person of Jesus Christ. Friend, if you're here today and you live your life separated from a holy, righteous, good God, hear these words as a statement for you. This is what God has accomplished for you. Would you believe in Christ today? Would you see the sacrifice that Jesus has made on your behalf? Would you know that apart from Jesus bearing and carrying your sins, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You live your life separated from a holy, good, righteous God. But the beauty of this text reminds us that the Day of Atonement is no longer one day in a calendar year. It is every day. For the Bible says today is the day of salvation, tomorrow is not promised. Would you trust in Christ's sacrifice today? Notice what Christ has done. He has done something on behalf of. And this is why we call it vicarious substitution. Jesus has accomplished something that you or I could not accomplish ourselves. You can't make a sacrifice big enough, good enough, great enough. You can't even give your own life to make appeasement for God's wrath against your sin. Only this servant could accomplish this act to obtain your salvation and my salvation. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted for something he had done. This is the testimony of the Jews. They didn't see Jesus hanging on the cross for the sins of the world. Jesus himself was guilty of what? Blasphemy. Jesus had equated himself as being one with God. Jesus had equated himself as being God. So for the Jews, Jesus hangs on the cross for something he had done, not something they had done. Yet Isaiah confesses, verse 5, he was wounded for our transgressions. Notice this two-part phrase here in verse 5. He for our. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon Him was a chastisement that brought us peace. He was quite literally our peace punishment. Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ's punishment secured our salvation. See what he says in that last phrase? And by his stripes we are healed. And all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned. Who? Everyone. There's not one of us that's not a sinner apart from Christ. We have all turned, every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Look what Yahweh does. Yahweh transfers the guilt. Yahweh transfers the guilt of the guilty to the head of the servant. God in sending Jesus takes my guilt and your guilt and he places that guilt on the person of Jesus and Jesus on the cross bears the very wrath of God in his body. Penal substitutionary atonement. Not only was it vicarious on behalf of someone else, it was also penal. Jesus suffered as a penalty for whose sin? Not Jesus's sin. My sin and your sin. The sins of the world. The sins of all who have gone astray. And who are the ones who have gone astray? Is there one single Person that has not gone astray? No. So who are the our and the we of this text? For sure, it's Isaiah and Israel. But we know already from Isaiah chapter forty two and Isaiah chapter forty nine. That the gospel's intended focus was not only for the nation of Israel, but also as a light to the Gentiles. Jesus has suffered on behalf of the sins of the world to make atonement so that those who by faith trust in him might have everlasting life. Have you trusted in this substitute today, friends? Do you see the agony of the cross? Do you see the pain of what Jesus has accomplished? As John Calvin said, quote, referencing the passage here in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6, on Him was laid... The guilt of the world, your guilt, my guilt, has been placed on Jesus so that you and I, by faith, might have a right relationship with God. Jesus accomplishes on your behalf. And on my behalf, vicarious atonement. But he also was punished. Penal, substitutionary atonement. For my sins and your sins. And what does this lead to? Isaiah 53, verses 7, 8, and 9. It leads to death. Look as Isaiah depicts the death of Jesus. The servant is submissive to death. He was oppressed and was afflicted, yet opened not his mouth. This is a testimony of the Gospels. Luke chapter 23, verse 9, Jesus does not respond like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before his shearers is silent. Jesus submits to death, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He dies for the sins of others. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked. Jesus was buried. Jesus died. He was buried not only was his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Isaiah writing 700 years before the person of Jesus would ever become God incarnate depicts with such clarity exactly what Jesus would accomplish, not only his suffering on the cross, his death, but notice what he says, even his burial, but not just any burial. Isaiah depicts Jesus' burial with specificity. He would be buried with the rich. In whose tomb was Jesus buried? Joseph of Arimathea. It's interesting that the New Testament would note his name. But we know that he had to be one of wealth because he owned his own burial. perhaps you're here today and you have a problem trusting you have a problem trusting God you have a problem trusting the word of God hear the testimony of this text of scripture 700 700 years before Jesus would arrive. And with great clarity, every aspect of crucifixion, of death and burial, Isaiah sees, but he not only sees death and burial. Look at verse 10. verses 10, 11, and 12 remind us that the servant is victorious through death. Verse 10, Jesus will rise again. Yet, we learn, it was the will of whom? The Lord, Yahweh. God is the main player in this drama of redemption. What happens in the life of Jesus is directed by the Father. God is ultimately the one who has put him, Jesus, to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, Here's that language of guilt offering and and sin offering. Atonement and forgiveness of sin. When his soul makes an offering for guilt. Look at the end of verse 10 here. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. There it is, friend. The beautiful, glorious resurrection of the servant. He dies. He suffers a brutal death. He is buried. Yet he shall see. How? As Jesus would say in John chapter 11 I am. The resurrection and the life. Jesus is victorious through his death and his resurrection. We cannot separate the glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ from the brutal agony of defeat of the cross. Yet, it is through the defeat or the appearance of defeat of the cross that Jesus ultimately provides glorious, beautiful, resurrected power for you and for me. Texas in 1835 and 36 was in a revolutionary war of its own, a war with Mexico. And in March of that year, a small band of soldiers from Texas had staked their place at this small mission that you and I know today as the Alamos. But it's interesting why we remember the Alamo. The Alamo and the story of the Alamo is not a story of victory. The story of the Alamo is a story of incredible defeat. Santa Ana had moved his Mexican army into the area, and they were aware that a small band of Texas soldiers were placed In the mission at the Alamo. And the Mexican troops attacked the Alamo, and guess what they did? They defeated the Texas troops at the Alamo. But just a few weeks later, Santa Ana would make. A brutal mistake. Santa Anta, coming off of the defeat at the Alamo, and his arrogance, positioned his troops at San Jacinto for a stand against the Texas soldiers. And when the battle began, the Texas soldiers were heard shouting over and over and over and over again, Remember the Alamo! Remember the Alamo! And guess what happened that day in San Jacinto? The Texas troops defeated the Mexican army and secured the final victory for the state of Texas. See, the Alamo reminds us in some ways of the story of Christ. For the cross is the Alamo to the world. The world looks to the cross and there it says defeat, defeat, defeat. Satan has won and God has been destroyed. The Alamo, the cross, is not the last statement. And Christ's ultimate defeat of Satan, resurrection, is Jesus' ultimate state of victory. And Isaiah has painted with such beautiful clarity, what Jesus and Jesus alone has accomplished on behalf of his people. And this fourth servant song, this fourth servant hymn, reminds us of another hymn. A hymn written by Isaac Watts. Were the whole realm of nature mine? That were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine. Demands my soul, my life, my all. Isaac Watts captures in a hymn what Jesus' life demands of each of us. Have you given your all to Christ today, friend? How can we see the brutality of the cross and think that a half-hearted commitment to Christ will suffice? Would you see the sacrifice of Christ the glory of his resurrection and know that has been accomplished on your behalf and in doing so would you commit your life to Christ today or perhaps renew your commitment to him let's pray Lord we thank you for the glorious resurrection of Christ we thank you Not only this Sunday, but every Sunday for what you, God, have accomplished on our behalf. And as we see the ugliness of the cross, we also see the beauty of the resurrection. And in doing so, Lord, we ask this morning that for your church, you might increase our affection for Jesus. You might increase our love and devotion to him. Lord, for that one that might be here today that is lost, that lives their life separated from you, would you compel them through your gospel and by the power of your spirit to believe? Would you spend a few moments where you're seated today and reflect upon the preaching of God's word? How does this image of Jesus, for those of you who believe, how does this image of Christ stir your heart with a greater affection for Christ? Would you ask God to increase your love for Him? Would you thank him for the sacrifice that he has made on your behalf? Would you see it as Isaac Watts saw it? Demands my life, my all. Would you recommit your all to Christ today? Friend, perhaps you're here today and you do not believe. You have not trusted. Would you hear this text this morning and believe in God's sacrifice on your behalf? There is no other sacrifice that can satisfy. There is no future sacrifice that is coming for which you need to wait. Jesus has completely and sufficiently and totally made that sacrifice on your behalf. Would you believe today? We're going to stand in just a few moments and corporately respond to the preaching of God's word. If you're here today and you've never trusted in Christ, myself and Pastor Travis will be down front. We would be glad to spend a few moments with you and share with you how you can trust in Christ. But friend, you don't have to come forward and talk to Pastor Travis or myself. You can turn to someone seated next to you for there are plenty of people in the context of this room that are seated near you that would delight in sharing with you how you can trust in Christ. Perhaps you'd like for one of us just to pray with you. That God, through the preaching of his word today, might increase your love for Christ. That your affection for Christ might grow. Or thirdly, maybe God has impressed upon your heart that this is a congregation in which you need to be connected to live out your life on mission with him. This would be an opportunity for you to express your interest and being part of this faith family. Lord, as we respond to you now, may our response be pleasing to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me this morning?